0: Welcome to Consciously, a podcast focused on honest conversation by regular people and for regular people seeking spiritual growth.
1: Hey family, it's Menachem. Welcome to episode two of Spiritual Gangsters, Real People Who Are Killing It. Today, we have a great treat my dear friend Gedalia Orbach. Who is Gedalia? Gedalia grew up actually in Johannesburg, South Africa, and he's been living in Israel for the last 20 years. In fact, Gedalia and I met in Israel, and we were in yeshiva together there. He has been involved with young adults for over 15 years, including time as director of Yeshiva's Kesher in Yerushalayim. He works as a therapist in both private and yeshiva settings. Gedalia has a passion for group therapy and runs groups with students in various institutions. These groups provide a powerful resource for fostering self-awareness, self-acceptance, and genuine connection with others. An engaging and charismatic educator, Gadalia enjoys giving over classes on Torah philosophy and has a unique ability to make Torah relevant to today's youth. Gadalia has an MS in clinical counseling and is also a certified life coach and NLP practitioner. Gadalia is known in his community for his commitment to producing quality herring for the Shul's weekly Kiddush. In addition, his chicken wings are widely considered the best in the business on both sides of the Atlantic. Gadalia lives in Ramat Beit Shemesh with his wife and six fabulous children. Gadalia is also one of my most favorite people in the world. And as you're going to see, he's got great insight on life. Such great material to share with you. Here it is. Okay, so here we are with uh, my dear friend, my chavrusa, as he would say, Gadalia Orbach. How you doing, brother? Doing great, great. Okay, awesome. So um, everyone's already heard your illustrious bio, uh, and they're, they're so excited to hear what you have to say, but uh, just give a sense of who you are, where you're from, why do you have such a weird
2: accent? <laughs> I'm the one in this room without the accent, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I love saying that like, to big crowds, they hear me speak, and I'm like, it's interesting being the only one in the room without an accent. Right. And uh, I remember when we Kadali and I went to
1: Medrash together, Medrash Shmuel, where there's a lot of uh, there's a fair amount of Americans, but there's a fair amount of other people from other countries. And I remember the first time there was a, a French guy. you remember Haliwa and he told me that he thinks in French, and that blew my mind.
2: Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, such a shift in paradigm. Yeah, yeah. But I was born actually in Israel. Really? Yeah, yeah. I was born in Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, Era Kodesh. And when I was seven, my parents moved to South Africa, where my father was brought out by the fledging Orosameach community that was just beginning over there. They'd been going for about a year, I think, and they needed like a rav. So they brought my father out. I was seven years old. The plan was to be there for two years and my parents are still there. Mm. And that was over 30 years ago. So that's where I landed up actually growing up. It was in South Africa, in Johannesburg. But then when I came back to Yeshiva over here, when I was 19 or 20, it was, it was in many ways, Eritrea was home. Lots of family here. I didn't feel too much like a foreigner coming in. So it's, it's kind of interesting for me because my parents are American. I was born here, but my formative years were in South Africa. Like from age 7 to age 20, that's where I spent almost all my time. And those are obviously very important years in a person's life. So I'm kind of a bit of a mix. I'm around today a lot of Americans. Most of my work is with the American you know Hevra, the American guys who come out here um, I do a bit of teaching also in a seminary, so i 'm mostly around Americans over here in terms of my professional life. so it is an accent so i 'm around a <laughs> lot of people with an accent <laughs> yeah and obviously, when I go back to south africa that 's when my accent becomes much stronger yeah when i 'm here, I think it gets diluted a little bit a
1: yeah and then at some point you transition from. I guess learning to working professionally as a clinician.
2: Yeah, what actually happened is that around that age, you know, when I came to Israel and I started I had certain struggles. I always had a hard time with learning. And I grew up, thank God my parents are awesome, wonderful. I grew up in a very very special family. I had my own issues though, in terms of learning and, and really Becoming that guy that I'd always wanted to be, which is really a learning guy. (laughs) It just wasn't working. And for years, it just wasn't working for a few years. And I think that that caused me to, well, that was a major component, component, I think, of what caused me to go into a stage of real internal turmoil and struggle and, I guess, a search for identity and needing to work out that Hashem loves me as I am even if I'm not doing that thing which is the best thing in the world that I had so, which was so meaningful for me or real for me or so true in my mind, which is that I need to be sitting and learning all day. And then that was a real struggle. And I think that brought out all sorts of questions of Emuna, uh which took me quite a bit of time to work out, but I was very serious about it. I wasn't playing around. I, I was really seeking, seeking answers, seeking to find myself and thank God I was blessed to, to meet amazing people who helped me and after going through you know, an intellectual search I remember I would sit in let's say Rabbi Gottlieb, Rabbi David Gottlieb from R.S.M.A. who who's just a world class in terms of many things but certainly in terms of helping people rationally understand the truth of Torah and I would, everything would make sense everything would make sense not after one time months and months of this and yet i would then walk down the street and be like yeah but what but maybe it's not maybe it's not And at a certain point i realized that you know gadalia maybe your problem's not in your head (laughs) maybe your problem is somewhere in the heart somewhere else and uh i did a lot of i recognized that i needed to do a lot of you know emotional work and i had like i say great people around me great therapists And it was, it was a, it was a tremendous journey. It was a tremendous journey for me to, to, I can't say for the first time be allowed to be myself, even though that would sound really cool. You grew up religious. No, it wasn't like that. I I always could be myself in many, many ways. I never had a problem being a rabbi's son. I love being a, I love being a rabbi's son and I love being a rabbi's son and my father's my hero. And that was never really an issue. I think it was, more m- m- it was more about me accepting myself as opposed to feeling like people had expectations of me and I needed to be a certain way. It wasn't like that. It was more some sort of internal struggle. And emotionally, I had to work out my relationship with God, which was really an emotional thing. And I found... Rabbi Nachman to be very helpful so I could stop beating myself up become okay with myself and recognize that I just need to be me and that it's okay and that it's beautiful it's so funny because I tell people this today because I think I think this is actually quite a common struggle for many people is to you know, the self-acceptance I mean we could sit here and talk about self-acceptance all day and, and well, everything comes down to that in many ways but I remember how even when I was dating, <laughs> and I was doing really well, that's why I was dating, I remember asking my Rebbe, I said, like, how can I marry a girl who will marry me? Mm. I'm supposed to be sitting and learning all day, right? right. So if she marries me, she's off hashkafically. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, obviously I was already healthy enough to... You know, to understand there was something wrong with that, but like, <laughs> just help me, here. Give me. Give me some rational explanation for why that would be okay. Right. You know, but I often tell people today, I'm like, you should know that if, because thank God today, I feel, feel good about myself. Generally speaking, I can have my moments, but, right. you know, and, and like, I'm blessed and privileged and, and, you know, to be involved with people and to try and be helpful. And sometimes I'll tell people, you know, I say, you know, if I would have seen myself, Today, when I was 20, I would have looked at myself and I would have said, you're a colossal failure. That's how I would have looked at myself. I would have said, you're not actually doing... you're not actually doing the things that you're supposed to be doing. And that's, uh, I guess, a pretty... I guess a pretty rotten place to be. You know, to have that type of... uh, idea you know that's that's what I tell people I say you look at me today you should just know that when I was your age if I would have seen myself today I would have said that's not good
0: Mm.
2: so obviously there was something off with that because I may not be the best person in the world and I may not be doing everything right but I certainly don't think I'm a failure and that I'm worthless and that I'm doing the wrong thing and that there's no real real point and I think the most important thing for me in terms of Recognize, you know, in terms of recognising what I needed to recognise to move on. And for me, this is very powerful, is that nobody wants to play on the B team. Nobody wants to play on the B team. So a person who grows up in a certain environment and then feels like he can't play in the A team of that world, he doesn't want to play. Right. He, nobody wants to play on the B team. I'd rather play a different game. That seems to be a big issue that emerges...
1: Particularly in the world of yeshiva, where there's a certain like attitude and perspective. Not that it's not to dismiss it, as you're saying. Where like the ideal is to be a certain way, and then if you're not that way, if you can't be that, then somehow you're playing on the B team.
2: Yeah, yeah, and again, it's it's. I don't even think that it. I'm not even sure where it comes from. It's not that I, in my head. I don't even believe that it comes. F- I think a lot of it is internal. It's right. like a, it's like. Well, what was remarkable like, about like coming
1: from, uh, Haredi, Orthodox, or so everyone uh, whatever semantic you want to use to describe right. it, you know, it's even like, um, in in other worlds, you know, so like, okay, so I can't be accomplished in this arena, but I can go be accomplished in a different arena. So I can't be accomplished in the acad- academic arena, but I can go make lots of money, right? right. But then if you're coming from, and I, I would imagine this might apply in other arenas that are similar, right? But just specifically to what we're talking about is that even if you encounter a lot of success in a lot of areas, in your chosen area of focus, right? You go out and make a lot of money or you go out and have a thriving practice of helping people as a clinician and but you're still playing on the B team. You could have all the success in the world and you're still playing on the B team.
2: It's remarkable. It's a remarkable phenomenon. Right. Well, but it's not true. Right. The point is to recognize that, no, this is exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And as much as we understand that learning Torah is a tremendous ideal, and if a person could do that, it's wonderful. And it is, you know, in a sense, the ultimate, in a certain sense, of serving God. There is that idea of learning Torah. That's, that's, that's the way we get there. But, it, but if I'm doing what I need to be doing for myself, that is my ultimate, and I'm on the A-team. And that's, that's sometimes tough to work out. You know, that sometimes that could be a struggle. How does that work? And, and
1: well, it requires a dialectic and it requires like a more subtle and nuanced perspective. Where right. You know, there's an objective and a subjective. Right,
2: exactly. Right. It requires that type of what I would say healthy, balanced, you know, mind, healthy, balanced emotions. But certainly what's very, very clear, and this became clear to me, and I see this all day with people, is that if a person doesn't feel like he's he's playing, he's in he could be in the he's in the Super Bowl. You're you're playing in the big leagues. Right. You're not a schlepper. If a person doesn't feel that way, then he can't like no, really of feel not. Of not. actualized. Not not only that, he will. The point is, is that that person will leave that arena and go to and go to an arena that he can be on that. Even right. if that means getting girls, doing drugs, being a criminal. Right. And feel successful in it. So then maybe that's where he will go, because here I'm in the top. Right. Person wants to be at the top of their game. Right. So, so let me play a game that I could be the top. Right. We're not here to be on the B team. And we're not. We're actually not supposed to be on the B T. God, the way I understand it, is not interested in anybody feeling like he's second rate. Mm. So let me find a place where I could be first right.
1: So what's remarkable about what he said before we jump into the next question is that, you know, you could have all the intellectual um searching in the world all the cognitive searching in the world but it didn't really sit well until you found peace in your heart on an emotional level you know and that included this that kind of nuanced thing that you're talking about that you call healthy or balanced right it's not something that you get That's not an intellectual ultimately it's not a hashkafic conversation it's not a philosophical conversation
2: it's more of a it's an inside job Kind yeah, of thing. and it's never going to be it's never going to be, which is not to take away from the importance of having the intellectual, rational understanding right. of why we do what we do right. that' for right. me was critical. that right. was an important component to have that question answered absolutely right right, absolutely right but i I almost was forced to face my emotions because. I was very serious about the intellectual and emotional and rational search and it took me to very good places, but it's, it just couldn't get me out of the line. Right,
1: right. If that's subtle, right, it's because the emotional side is ethereal. It's not, it's not specific, right? And that's why it's like, it's always, it always leaves you wanting, right? You can have all the kind of qualitative or quantitative growth in the world, but if the qualitative piece is always missing if you're not dealing with the, the inside job. Okay, so let's get to know you a little bit okay. in a weird way. So, as, as the listeners might have come, become accustomed to, I'm not sure which episode this will be. We'll have to decide. <laughs> it's going to be about seven episodes in the first season. I'm really excited, actually. Um, I, I decided this morning, while I was thinking about it, the first season is going to be people under 40. Oh, I just, that's what I'm going to do. You just make it. And my friend Akiva Broman also just made it. He was like right before his 40th birthday. So I was going to chase after some, some people that I really admire, um, that are much older. And then I, it dawned on me that it'd be really nice to do like people that are really doing cool things that are, you know, in and around my age, which is, which is really cool. And then a little bit younger. Right, so uh, that's going to be this first season. It'll be about seven or eight okay. people, hopefully six or seven people. So we'll see which one you're in. So, so we ask a few interesting questions to kind of get to know you. I guess in the way that we're talking about it, qualitatively instead of quantitatively. Okay, right? that's what we want to know. So the first question is, if I had to ask you what your favorite place in the world is, like your favorite place within the the realm of of spatial reality. Right? What is that? But I, I want to ask you to be specific. Like, don't tell me the old city. Right? Which stone in the old city?
2: Right? <laughs> and why? And why? I'm a therapist. Right? <laughs> I, get, I get the question. <laughs> what about that makes you feel that way? <laughs> yeah. Well, just to just to uh, yeah, I saw the... I saw these questions, you sent it to me. Yeah, everyone sees the questions. Right, cool. so I took a look at it, um, and it's really cool, we're doing this all together, and I just want to say that it's, it's brilliant to be doing this with you, uh, an old friend that I feel connected to, and also we, you know, a few weeks ago, I was in New York, and we, we spent some time together, and it was awesome, and uh, I admire you, and I respect you a lot for everything that you're doing, mm. and uh, so to get that call from you, I felt, you know, privileged, honored, brilliant to be here with you. So thank you for that Uh, very much. It's really nice. Um, Just to answer this question, so for me, you know, I looked at your questions and there's so much to say about all of them. They're great questions, you know. So when you spoke about the space, I found it pretty difficult to be able to identify one particular place. This is my favorite place in the world. Very hard for me to do. So I kind of split it up, if that's Okay into a few different places because you're a nuanced thinker so <laughs> you've already established <laughs> that you know, I, I can't do that I can't I can't limit myself I have too much ego right, to limit myself this is me yeah, I don't do that
0: okay uh, so you put it up
2: <laughs> well so first of all I was, I was thinking in terms of living So I'm so happy to live in Eretz Israel, to live in Israel. Mm. And I think that's because altogether I feel like it allows me to to bring out the best version of myself, you know, living in Israel. Mm. I just think there's something about being here where there's a certain intensity and there's a certain focus and the people that I'm involved with here mostly are young people who are coming to seek and to search. I feel like I'm constantly surrounded over here in Israel by people that are using this space, as you're saying, this space to help themselves. And I'm hopefully going to be a part of that. So that kind of forces me to, to, to bring my stuff. You know, I got to bring my game. Mm. I can't show up. You know, I can't show up. I, I can't walk into a group you know I'm blessed to do quite a lot of groups I, I can't walk in the, I have to walk and bring in my game and I think part of that is is because the people are coming and they want something and they're coming to Eretz Israel for a reason and I kind of I think get caught up in that and become a part of that so, so, the, so. the entire country is a therapeutic milieu look I, it's hard for me to speak for your regular Israeli living out in Afula. right right I'm saying you for, you, for you but for me yeah, yeah for it's me my zone over here is that zone I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I walk, I'll, I'll get home and I feel like, and it's not a common feeling, but it can happen. Usually I feel like I'm really invested and involved in, in a very serious way. But there could be a time where even if I didn't feel that way, I was still so involved that day in therapy and in growth and in deep discussions that I feel like some sort of like, like, like a therapy machine, if you know what I'm saying. Like and I could turn it off now, like, and just go home. (laughs) Which is not a bad thing. Obviously, if I felt that way all the time, then I wouldn't be being so true to myself, but it's not that way. It's just, it forces me to be that. So Eretz Yisrael for me is is a special place because of that. And then obviously there's the different places in Eretz Yisrael. You know, you speak about the old city, it's very special, the coastal, all all that type of thing, going up north. But as a whole, in terms of living... People often ask me, would you live in South Africa? Would you live in America? The answer is yes, I would. I'm not one of these guys. It's, it's where God sends me. But I feel happy that I'm, be, that I'm able to be. Here. I feel mm-hmm. happy that I'm able to be. Here. Again, because I feel like it allows me to bring out a good side of myself altogether. So that's cool. Uh, but let's say I'm looking for a bit of a spiritual boost or something like that. So in the last year, I've become. Uh, I don't know how to use, the, what words to use for this because it's not for me to say that I'm a Talmud or a Chassid or anything, but I became attached, I feel, to, to, uh, to Rupshayla from Kerastir. Hmm. And I've been there quite a few times in the last year. And it's, it's, it's been an amazing, the impact, and I don't even understand it. I actually can't understand the impact. I don't understand how it works. And I don't feel I need to understand so much how it works. But I definitely feel very connected when I go there. And even when I don't go there, I just feel connected to Rapshahila in a certain very special way. I've seen certain things happen in my life in the last year that have been life-changing. That happened pretty soon after I went there. And going there is always very special.
1: Mm -hmm. It's
2: always good by Rapshahila. It's just a matter of where is it good, when was it good, in which way it was good. But it's always good. You know, so it's a space of warmth and of love and of acceptance. It's almost like yeah, you're going to the tzaddik, but you're also going to to your zayda. you know. I'm also going to like somebody who you know, who's, who's who accepts me, loves me and allows me to to, to just come and be and, and and I've gone with different groups of people and it's been amazing. So that's a very special space for me as well mm-hmm. in terms of just connecting spiritually and, and that type of thing for sure. And then to just chill, if you want to just talk about just, you know, taking it easy and chilling. And, and So then South Africa. South Africa is just a great place to go on a holiday, on a vacation, as you would say. Particularly, I would say, the Kruger National Park, which is a safari. It's big. It's the size of – it's almost the size of Israel, you know, and, and it's a place where the animals are roaming free. And, you know, it's like being in the world just before Adam, you know, and you're out there by yourself. Hmm to go there but to go on a game drive by yourself out there early morning. I remember a year or two ago, I went with my family for Pesach. So we went up to the game reserve. The one morning I ran away from the kids <laughs> and, I, and I, uh, just, I went by myself, got in the car and drove on a, a two hour game drive early in the morning in the park. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. Very, very special just to reconnect to myself and to, to Hashem. I find it to be a spiritual place in a sense just because there's so much less static over there the distractions it's just me Hashem and his world beautiful way to connect and recharge Hmm. so in a a sense that's my ideal holiday would be I would say the Kruger National Park or you know that type of thing Hmm. it's really awesome they say
1: that uh, the Rosh of God is uh, great outdoors (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah
2: Yeah. it's funny Yeah. yeah The, there's no question that you know even being able to see far to go somewhere where you can see far you could see mm. a mountain you could see a hill you could see the desert where your eye could see far there's something about that mm. that 's very soothing mm. people want a scenery what do you need scenery for you have a comfortable bed good food what 's the problem? no there's something that we need i think that our soul needs to be able to experience god 's world and to see it and to connect to it and it's awesome. So I guess those are some of my favorite some of your, places some that,
1: of your that favorite came to mind when <laughs> I your question. My change tomorrow. <laughs> okay, so um, if you had to pick one story, a mice, a folk story or a proverb, like something that sticks out to you, like a, a saying or a teaching and uh, that's really been guiding to you and something that's kind of given you a specific guiding principle for your life. This is like a a very, very direct question. And part of the objective of that is to, is to try to call out in these interviews, like some really concrete advice that people can gather from regular, normal, spiritual gangsters. People trying to like do the best they can one day at a time, B-teamers, you know? (laughs) B-teamers. I'm
2: all about the (laughs) B-teamers.
1: A-team B-teamers. So, uh, so, uh, so, what what would that be for you? If you had to pick one, you know, one story or proverb or saying, and then and then what that taught you.
2: So, I'll tell you something, you know, which has been coming up for me recently. So, when I saw this question, you know, it resonated with me. I'm just seeing over and over again, in the work that I do, how I'm seeing a lot of anxiety. Just seeing a lot of anxiety in the last few years, a lot, and I think a lot of it comes from people. I'm not going to sit here and solve the anxiety issue. I'm just saying something that I think is making sense to me, is that a lot of people are struggling to to be true to themselves, to be true to themselves, to to do the things that they deep down feel are good for themselves, as opposed to be being caught up with peer pressure or or any of the other things that drive a person. You know, to me, the the great strength of a person is that he's able to choose what is best for himself. You know, not to choose to do what feels good necessarily in the moment, but to choose to do what is best for himself. And when people consistently do that, they do feel good, generally speaking. And there's a feeling of power and control. And when people are not doing that, for whatever reason, very often there's a feeling of weakness. Mm. And people don't feel that great about themselves, even though they could do whatever they want. There's so many options, I could do whatever I want, but that doesn't help. The point is not to be able to do whatever that you want. The point is to be able to do what's best for you. That's what really makes a person feel good and strong. So the idea of staying true to oneself, being true to oneself in terms of how you live your life, being true to yourself yourself, in a relationship. I see this all the time, where people are in a relationship but they're not feeling like they're being true to themselves in that relationship. They're not able to say what they really want to say. They kind of got, they're scared. There's like a lot of fear, fear of rejection. I see this all the time. And yet, people actually appreciate when another person is true to themselves. That's what people connect to. And yet it's such a struggle. Mm. in many ways because of the fear of what's going to be and obviously in groups this is a major part of it so when I saw your question when I saw your question I thought of the Kotzka who has this expression it's very well known if I am I because I am I sorry if I am I because you are you mm. and you are you because I am I then I am not I and you are not you right. but if I am I because I am I and you are you because you are you then I am I and you are you and it's it's, it's fantastic it's Mm. fantastic because I think people connect so much to other people when people are being true to themselves because that's all people want people don't actually mind what's there and people themselves then feel so good to be able to express what is really going on for them and to be true to that and to be okay with that whatever it is It doesn't matter what it is. In the groups that I do, I see over and over and over and over again that nobody has a problem with a person expressing anything. The content doesn't matter. It could be wonderful things, not such one. The content doesn't matter. Is this the real you? Are you sharing with me? Are you being fake? Are you putting up a wall? Are you saying the things you think I want to hear? Or you just telling me what it's like to be you. And as soon as people are sharing, people can even share a story, a very deep, meaningful story. And a person could look, you know, and give feedback and say, I'm sorry, I just didn't get anything from that. Because I didn't experience the you in the story. You told me a nice story. And it might seem very intense, technically, in a book, it would say. But you didn't you didn't you didn't show me yourself. You weren't showing me who you are. Mm. And as soon as somebody shows other people who they are in a real way, it's brilliant. Wow. So for me, that statement is is very very powerful. Is that I need to be myself, and you need to be you, and it doesn't matter what you are. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you tell me. <laughs> Bless you. You're awesome. Thank you're beautiful. You. It doesn't matter. But But give me the real thing. Mm-hmm. and when when a person walks around walks around, living the life he wants to live, expressing himself in the way he wants to express, and he feels he's making decisions based on what's best for himself, as opposed to being caught up with all that that outside stuff, right It's a life of liberation. What you said was, was really subtle and powerful. First of all, I thought it, was, it was very
1: poignant. Um, first of all, it seems to be like a big part of. What you get out of the group, you know, specifically focusing on group as a clinical process, as opposed to like in an individual process. And I'm sure it does occur in an individual process clinically, but in a group process where you're being yourself around a group of people. Right. That plays out in like recovery meetings a lot as well. That was very, very powerful. But um, that subtlety of identifying that part of being true to yourself is not always doing what you want to do but doing what you know is best for you right Right. it's like that really that challenging kind of nuance there it's really powerful so what it what you talked about some of the struggles that you had in life um, challenges seeking for truth first um, rationally cognitively intellectually and then and then emotionally what was an episode in your life I'm sure there were many but what is a, a, an, an episode in your life that gave you a permission to be hopeful
2: you know I saw this I saw this question and yeah and it's funny because what came to mind I'm going to share with you but it, it's almost like indirectly answers the question but it's, it's the best I have in a sense yeah it's just it made the most sense to me to say what I'm about to say because it was almost like a like a non-episode you'll understand you know when I was in when I was going through that struggle I started getting into like I said before listening to to classes and shoe room and working certain things out and at and at a certain point I started seeing myself <laughs> slightly embarrassing to say this but okay right we have to step a little out, that's what, what we You know? I was sitting in a group uh, this week, actually, and you know, everyone has, every therapist, I guess, has his own style and how vulnerable he'll make himself and mm. how much he'll share, self-disclosure, all of that type of thing. Everyone has their, their ways of doing mm. it. It happens to be that at the end of this group, uh, I shared something that really felt vulnerable to me, but I just needed to say it. And, and then, and then and it was really uncomfortable. And then I said, ah, I talk about vulnerability all day, <laughs> but it is so hard, you know. And uh, I think the guys loved it, though, which is just that funny feeling, you know. The vul- people have that vulnerability afterwards as well, you know. So sometimes I'll, share, I'll tell people, you might feel a bit funny for a few days, mm. and then somebody gave me a great word for it, you might like this. It's called the vulnerability hangover. Right, you know, there you go. Yeah, it's like for a day or two or three, should I, should I, why did I, all that stuff. Anyway, so this thing I'm going to share with you is, is a little bit embarrassing, but, it, but I think that the, the message is strong and it was certainly a huge thing for me. So it's coming from a real place. So when I was going through that struggle, I was listening to a lot of Shurim and all of that. And I started getting into my head that my job in life is to be that next cure my Maestro. That's what Gedalia Albach really is all about. It's to be that next Kira Maestro. And for some reason in my head, I got maybe Rabbi Tatz, South African, very bright, has Makai and been involved with some wonderful, amazing man. Amazing. and in my head I started seeing myself as I'm the next Rabbi Tatz. That's that's me. You know, that's that's where it's headed. That's where it's got ahead, obviously. I'm so involved in this. And I'm, I'm smart, and I'm, and I'm with it, and, 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 and I'm getting it. So that's, that's what I'm supposed to do, right? And then one day, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm never going to be Rabbi Akiva <laughs> I realized, he's much smarter than me. He is a bigger Talmud than me. He has a much better vocabulary than me. He has a much more advanced education than I'm ever going to have. He has experiences that I'm never going to have. There is no way that I'm ever going to be rabbi-kinder And it was a crushing blow. It was a painful experience. It hit me to the depths. It was like my whole plan crumbled. And it was very difficult. But something unbelievable happened after that pain and after that disappointment and after those difficult realizations what happened was was that I became free to be <clears throat> Gedalia. Hmm. and it's been an amazing journey ever since. A story, and that's the truth of it
0: hmm.
1: the funny thing is which part of that story is embarrassing it's like in retrospect it was embarrassing that you were idolizing somebody and you wanted to be like them as if that's not something we all do you being and a therapist then, on me, Paz. Yes, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but then remarkably, like that, how freeing it was to, yeah. to be yourself. And that seems yeah. to be like such um, a uh, a guiding principle for you. Uh, as you said, you know, this whole being yourself, being true to yourself, you know, because that story reflects that. Yeah. Very clearly, you know, like that. Uh, I'm to get into my own. Yeah. Stuff that's, that's, that's really remarkable. thank you. That's really amazing. So what's like a, what's like a habit or like a practice that you have that maybe not everybody in the world knows about I don't mean like a secret, but like right. something that people might not know that really you feel contributes to your success, to your success as a person
2: So here's the thing is that one of the things. That in the last year that I've started being involved in, you know, um, is something called Kenyan Masechta, which is it's similar to the that program in America I think Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Newman started, where. You basically go over a Gemara many, many, many times. You do many Chazaras, and then it get into your Kishkas and you know it and you have a Kinyan, which is an acquisition, an acquisition of the Gemara that you're learning in like a real way. And it's been life-changing for me because <laughs> it's funny, we come back to that, to where we started about the Gemara learning. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize we were going back there. We're going, we're going back in. <laughs> is that you know at the end of the day there is something that I know for myself that when I'm involved in some real learning there's something that that does for me which is very special it's something I really want and something that deep down resonates with me and I feel like I'm, in, I'm living a different day when I'm connected for me to some Gemara specifically Gemara, I feel, instead of other things. There's something about Gemara, there's something about it for me that's very powerful. So almost I'm connecting to like the soul of something or I don't really understand it. I don't understand it, but I know that many people share the same experience is that we're involved in in Gemara in a way where they're actually getting it, then there's something that feels extremely special about that. And it impacts all sorts of other things as well. Uh, I think the problem for me, in yeshiva, a lot of the time was that I was learning, or whatever it was, trying to learn you and me, chavruses. That's right, you know. But and I love that yeshiva and everything, but I have no clue what we learned. You, I have no idea what Gemara we were learning, mm. you know. And we did sit together a bunch of times, <laughs> at least twice, the... <laughs> but I can't remember it. We definitely sat together. The question is, how many times was the Gemara open?
0: Right.
2: right. <laughs> 100%. But learning, I feel like I didn't have anything. And now I'm learning and I'm going over and over. And I don't need to know the depth of everything. I just need to know. I need to be able to open the Gemara and read through it. And now I can open a Gemara Chagiga and go through 10 blights in an hour. And that's something I never had in my life. It's an incredible experience. I feel good. I feel connected. So that's been a huge thing for me. That's been a huge, huge thing for me. Is it... Is it do you
1: think it's part of your... Being true to yourself is coming back to that aspiration.
2: I think that knowing that I'm doing something that I really believe in. Again, I don't have the struggle right now that I'm supposed to be sitting and learning all day. Right. I've worked that out, I think. Right. But I still believe in learning. I still know that it's an ideal for me. And to be able to do that by spending a few hours a week in the right, and learning it in the right way has been fantastic for me. And I'm seeing it with other people as well amazing it's really cool that's really cool that's really
1: amazing so you have a lot of relationships I'm sure I mean I I met your kids earlier really cute I think I met all of them no I I don't think I got all of them two and then there were three in the car so I got five yeah I think so very nice and I met your wife for the first time which is nice Um, so I'm sure you have many relationships but if you had to pick one relationship and not just one relationship because we're really kind of digging deep here something that's awesome about one relationship and then, what you do to foster that, to foster that thing in that relationship?
2: It's a great question, this guy. He's trying, trying to get me to think. <laughs> <laughs> this is not good. As a married person, I think to a married person that the most important, I guess, significant relationship that I have outside of my relationship with God would be with my wife. Okay. You know? and I was with my wife when I was kind of going over these questions so I had to it has to be with my wife right <laughs> yeah,
1: but so what's one thing that's awesome about your relationship with your wife yeah so
2: that's where that, that's where we I got to thinking and, and how do you I got, foster that so got me thinking about marriage there's a lot of books out there about marriage there's a lot of a lot of tips a lot of work you know a lot of therapeutic type of ideas and a lot of it is based on communication, you know. But for me, you know, the, the perhaps the best marriage book I've read that comes to mind is Doesn't Anyone Blush Anymore. It's a book by Rabbi Manis Friedman. Mm. It came out a long time ago. I think it came out in the 80s. And when I read that book, it was great. And it's a little bit different to other books about marriage. And... <laughs> It's different because it speaks, the way I I recall it, it speaks less about communication and more about knowing your place. It speaks more about boundaries. As Mm. opposed to we're in each other's lives so we have to communicate about everything and make sure it all works out and we're on the same team and we're hearing each other and feeling each other. It actually speaks more about the many areas of marriage where you need to leave each other alone. Mm. You kind of need to let a person be where it's really not your business. And I think, taking it now to my marriage, I think that's actually something that's really good in terms of our marriage, is that I try not to get too involved in things that are not my business and I feel that my wife does the same. You give each other space to be yourselves. Yes. It's beautiful. Yeah, and I I think that that's a big key. Yeah, of course you need to learn to communicate. And of course there's certain things that bother you. And of course there's certain things you need to talk about. But there might be all sorts of things that bother you simply because your head's totally in the wrong place. Mm. You're making something that's not your business your, your business. This is another person who needs to do what they need to do and do it their way. And a lot of that is their business. It's funny. It was a long time for me where, you know, when I was
1: younger, so you'd like learn about these ideals of... First all, I identify a lot with that. It's a very beautiful message, I think. I think it's a very powerful message. Um, like these ideas of unity that you're supposed to be getting out of marriage, how you're supposed to become one, unified. And somehow that got translated for me, and I find that it gets translated for a lot of people into some kind of ideal space where you are no longer an independent self, right? Which I think is something that we can that, that occurs naturally over time. There's a book, um, um, Rabbi Feldman, uh, the, river, the, the, Kevel, the, the, the River, the Kettle and the Bird. The River, the Kettle and the Bird. Have mm-hmm. you read that book? It's, it's a great book. So one of the things I really like about that book is that he talks about the patience that it requires to, and it's a similar idea. He talks about the river and the kettle. The whole idea there is that you're two separate entities working through trying to figure out how to like, play nicely in the sand. And as your life becomes further and further enmeshed in a way that's healthy, right, from that space of boundaries, right, you become more and more unified until there's a space where maybe down the line there's a, there's a singular identity, but that's only something that occurs kind of naturally. It's an evolution mm-hmm. over time as you build a life together, right? Then the, the identity of who you were before starts to slip away and the, and the kind of centralized identity of of having built this life and have these children and grandchildren and then and then there's a a greater sense of unity but that's something that's like a a payoff down the line not something that needs to be forced right and when you force that right then it doesn't allow that to foster because you're creating a false sense of enmeshment right meaning the enmeshment that we ordinary talk about right Mm -hmm. I remember there was one time in the the addiction world they talk about codependency right Mm -hmm. so codependency becomes like a bad word I remember I was talking to somebody who's kind of very, very like fixated on the whole thing. I was like, well, that sounds very codependent. And then it struck me and I was like, no, I don't think that's codependent. I think that's, there's a measure of interdependency. I've lived with this person for 20 years, right? There's a, there's a measure of interdependency there that's there. Like, you know, that doesn't, that, that occurs over 20 years. But the question is if I've kind of trying to force the issue or I've lost myself in the process right. and it becomes right. that codependency.
2: Right.
1: But that's a, that's a really beautiful message. Very beautiful. Obviously subtle and nuanced because, yes, yes. because the whole idea is to build vulnerability right. and intimacy. It's right. funny coming from you where you're talking about like such a premium on vulnerability and connectedness, but how in your personal life, how that becomes, what's amazing about those relationships is that ability to be yourself within that and then to allow that process to kind of, I'm sure,
2: foster over time. And just to add, I appreciate what you're saying. And just to kind of add a little twist of perhaps how that works, mm. that puzzle almost, it's, is it this way, is it that way, yeah. is that the more a person is able to create boundaries and a person is able to be themselves and not be negatively enmeshed with another person. So then when you do connect with the person it's a very powerful experience mm. because I am myself and, I, and and you allow me to be me and I allow you to be you then when we come and kind of like join together so it's very very powerful right because we're we really each an independent real person right and now we're joining together meaning like when you say no 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 and then you say yes right so then that becomes whoa this, right. is, this, is, this is we are incredibly this we are really connected here right it's very powerful it's not a cart and a horse right. it's, when it's When everything right. is like we're always together there's no me there's no use the power of the yes is lost the power of that connection is lost right oh very interesting you know? sometimes I
1: sometimes I, I, I this comes up a lot but uh, the realization that some of the most powerful expressions of love are when you're like so angry at a person <laughs> I think I said this before in a different episode <laughs> right, right? Right. Like, I'm so angry at you right now, but I am staying here and I'm going to work this out with you. And in some ways, that sense of commitment and dedication to a person is in some ways the most loving thing you can say. Right. right. Even when you're not agreeing with me, even when we don't see eye to eye, even when we don't have the same right. way of looking at it. I am right. here and I'm not going anywhere. I've pitched my tent here
2: right and that's why the love between a husband and wife for example is very different between siblings or parents and children those loves are uh, you know they're more more stable static it is what it is but a husband and wife we we see it even how the Torah presents that relationship there's a there's a a separation and a joining there's a you know what I'm saying It's, it's, it's a more vibrant raw kind of things are happening dynamic you know
1: yeah Wow, so so you're talking about a lot of deep things and you're, you talked about coming home and being burnt out or just feeling like a, a machine, <laughs> right? So, but you also talked about doing very, very elevated things, being in elevated places, being in elevated spaces. What's, what's a mantra or a practice that you have that helps keep you grounded, like not floating off into space or not losing yourself in your work or not losing yourself in these kind of ethereal thoughts?
2: Because I think the social, the, the social part of my life is really important for me and when I'm, you know, I spend time with friends, we have get-togethers, I like to make food and I think that's really healthy and people often, I'm sure you get this question like, how do you hang out with your friends, aren't you like analysing them and being a therapist and the answer is no, I'm really not. I find it quite easy. Thank God mm. to like switch off and just hang out with somebody and right. schmooze and whatever. And I'm not sitting there. Yeah. You know, it's not, like, it's a boundary thing, you know.
1: I find that to be like a sign of a good therapist, not necessarily a great psychological mind, but a good therapist is two separate things. Obviously it's useful to have a great psychological mind when you're a therapist, but is that ability to like turn that off and just be present. Cause then you can be, turn that off and be present in session also. Because <laughs> right? you're yeah. also like in session, and you're also like, you know, I'm not sitting and analyzing people while I'm in session. But right. at certain points, you have to.
2: Right. Particularly at like a, the beginning phase. Once you bring that up, I have to say that yeah. for me, I think, especially because of the group that I do, and it's so much this way, like for me, the most way to be helpful with somebody generally is, is not to sit there psychoanalyzing. But kind of just sharing my experience of you in a meaningful and honest way. Right. You know, that's for sure in group, that's how it works. And even generally, I try to avoid being this, you know, analyst. Right. I'd rather just spend time with you and, and share with you, you know, what's going on for me over here and that type of thing. I find that that's generally much more powerful. than Right. Telling you what's going on in your head and obviously you need to have some sort of idea of what you think is going on psychologically right. to be to be sometimes And really sometimes important. you share that and sometimes you right. don't. So, so, right. That's
1: right. Sometimes right. it's not important to right. share that stuff. Right. Sometimes exactly. it's more important for them to exactly. come to that themselves.
2: Exactly. Or or maybe to find out that you're wrong. For sure. Right. You have to remain teachable. Right. You know, if you come in and you've got you, you know, you know what the problem is right. before you've even right. done all the minutes. way. Right. So, what are you doing? Right. You know, Remarkable. I, I have a friend who's a therapist too, who told me a great thing. He says, When, he, when I sit with a client, the first thing that I think of is, What is my client going to teach me today? Mm. Wow. Which I think is awesome. That's beautiful. You know, yeah, yeah. It's really cool. Not so easy to do because, you know, I think I'm really smart and all right. good and I know what's up. And, right. You know, and they also put you over pedestals. Yeah. It's- it's like the whole thing, you know. <laughs> 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 yeah. you, okay, like I got this, you know. But coming back to the question, yeah, it's really just, it's just, it's, it's, it's being having a, a laugh outside of therapy. And obviously, you know, I started the thing with my wife recently where we try to take a walk in the evening because, you know, to, to spend meaningful time together in the house and the kids are getting older, it's difficult. Um, my supervisor tells me I have to go away, you know, every two months to get away for an night or two, my wife. You know, that's really nice as well. Mm. I love being on vacation and being like, well, this is what I have to do. <laughs> you know? It's a business expense. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Uh, but yeah, I've got to have a life outside of it. Right. Know? So that's, that's really nice. That's really important to you. Yeah.
1: Okay, so what are, I'm sure you encounter burnout, you know? So what are steps? I mean, you just kind of alluded to that. Yeah. What are concrete steps that you take to manage that? You know, when you wake up in the dark space even on a given day or when you're feeling overwhelmed and burnt out, what are some things that you do to kind of get yourself recharged?
2: Yeah, so like you said, I, I think I alluded probably to the most important parts of those, which is to, to get away from it all in a certain sense and uh, reconnect to the important people in my life, that type of thing. Um, I think just on a day-to-day basis... You know, to avoid burnout, I drive every day to work and back. So even just taking that time to listen to a little bit of music, hmm. you know, maybe make a phone call to somebody that has, you know, that it's not, a, it's not a therapy call, just what's up, how are you, how's it going, that type of thing. Hmm. Uh, probably don't do that enough. As I'm, as I'm sitting here saying that, I'm like, what do you mean? You don't do that too often. Why are you saying that? But I guess it's something I'd like to be doing more because I, I can get caught up with things, you know? But I, I also believe that part of the, our world, our religious world, you know, the way it's set up, you know, the way God set up the system, with Shabbos, with davening, with learning, you kind of, there's, there's in the system itself, in our lives, if I'm living my life as a Jew, so those opportunities for doing something different than than my work, per se, is always there. Stepping back, stepping It's always back. there. Yeah. Shabbos, Kiddush, you know, Shabbosudas, you know, Tamo yontif. It's mm. an interesting thing. Yeah. Ima- imagine you're a person out there who, who's very career-oriented and, and is doing really well. It could be, you know, you have to spend much more energy and, and focus on and getting defocused, whereas over here it's kind of it can happen more naturally just if you're trying to live the life of a yid, you know? Beautiful. That's how you take advantage of those things. Yeah. Yeah. I make herring for my kiddush, and sure. That's part of what I do. I find that kind of therapeutic, standing in the kitchen, chopping up onions, saying, look how we this for the herring. Mm. That's good for me. You know, it's good for me. It's
1: beautiful. All right, that was amazing. We did really well, 54 minutes and 46 seconds. I set the timer at 55 minutes. Oh, nice. It's amazing. It's been great. It's really good. It's, been good. it's been really nice. some remarkable things that you said. I really appreciate it. I hope other people do, too. Or else it'll just be between us, and that's also <laughs> <laughs> That's
2: also fun. <laughs>
0: to the Consciously podcast. Consciously is a project of The Living Room, which is a division of Our Place, New York, and made possible by the kindness of the Capellius family, in memory of Tsipora Basravaram. The host of Consciously is Menachem Posnansky and produced by Chaim Kohn. Editing by Eitan Kornblum and our trusted assistant to the regional co-host, Shmaya Hanekman. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts And subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. We sincerely welcome and appreciate your feedback and questions. So please feel free to email us at Consciousness62 at gmail.com or on our Instagram and Facebook pages.